so I, I wanted to spend a little time talking, as I usually do, about the 12 steps. And I'm going to draw on uh, the work of... <laughs> it's kind of odd having two books in the works right now. Uh, but I'm going to draw some on the, on the second one, which is, isn't going to come out for a year or so. Um, so you can just live in craving. I'm sure you'll get over it pretty quickly. Um, And one, so this book is uh, primarily about finding joy in recovery, which I think is so important and sometimes so hard uh, to. We can so easily get stuck in the the kind of grunt work of recovery and dealing with our own cravings and. And then, you know, how do I manage the steps? And I'm supposed to write this inventory, and I feel so bad about myself. And, oh, now I have to make amends. How am I going to do this? And, and even once we've gone through that process once, in some ways, you know, sometimes when I go to a meeting, I'm struck by a way in which people make recovery into work. And, and as much as we do work the steps, which is even a phrase that I don't, I couldn't define what it means. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's not enough, right? I mean, we're not really coming into recovery in order to work on ourselves all the time, but, but to really to find happiness, to find some freedom. And that doesn't mean that it's always easy and that there isn't some work, but I think it's also important for us to find, find the joy in the process. And um, so one of the chapters in here is kind of just specifically about the steps and um, kind of finding joy in each of the steps. And, but before I even go into that, I have a piece which is sort of a, a, a summation of one of the ideas that I work with a lot in my teaching but that I haven't written too much about, which is the idea of the... 12 Steps as an Archetypal Spiritual Path. I'd like to talk about that a little bit, and then about the, the joy part of it. So this is um, one of the th- things that I've arrived at when, you know, as I've worked with Buddhism and the 12 Steps and kind of found these corollaries, uh, and I don't mean to, I found them in kind of the same way that Columbus discovered America. They, you know, uh, I wasn't like the first one to arrive there. Just something that I came upon as well. Um, uh, you know, I, I asked myself for some time, why do these two systems work well together? Uh, and I finally kind of arrived at the conclusion which may be right and may be wrong, but it's just the conclusion that I've decided to arrive at, that there's something fundamental that they are both drawing on that isn't about either of them, that's something more fundamental to kind of the human psyche and, uh, and this sort of, uh, as I say, archetypal path, that is something that, that exists outside of any tradition, outside of any culture or any time in history. Uh, and, you know, I think that um, Joseph Campbell is talking about this when he talks about the hero's journey. 
which I think it's interesting that you know screenwriters adopted that as a, a as a, a way to write screenplays. This is this is one of my side comments here, but and then you know there's like people who have written the book on the hero's journey in the screenplay. When I saw one of those, I picked it up. It was like the hero's journey in Sister Act. I was like, really? <laughs> We've come to this, you know. <laughs> We've really degraded this idea. <laughs> okay. Now back to your regularly scheduled program. Uh, nonetheless, I think that there is this kind of human path, this path, this spiritual path that, that in fact, the, when the Buddha talks about his own breakthrough, he describes it as finding an ancient path in, that's been gro- overgrown. And, and there's an ancient city, and he finds the path to this ancient city, and, but and it's kind of that's kind of how it how it uh, seems to me that there is this this ancient path. And so, the beginning of this path is sometimes called the wake up call. Um, now I'll read a little bit of this just because it probably sums it up better than I can improvise. The beginning of any inner work is the disquieting sense that something is wrong, either in our own lives or in the way people around us live. This may come as a mild discomfort with our corporate job and lead to reading a spiritual book we wouldn't have been interested in before. Maybe we'd then take a yoga or meditation class and start to get in touch with a part of ourselves long suppressed. For addicts, the realization that something wrong usually comes in a much more dramatic fashion, waking up in jail, getting a divorce petition, losing a job, getting sick. Hitting bottom may also be less dramatic, but is always a turning point. What's important is never the nature of the problem that we wake up to, but our response to it. The Buddha's moment of waking up was existential, realizing that everything around him was subject to decay and death, and seeing the pointlessness of pursuing a life of pleasure that could never bring ultimate satisfaction. Bill Wilson, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, got his wake-up call in a blinding flash of insight while detoxing in a hospital bed. What these paths share, then, is the realization that the way we are living doesn't work, In the 12-step world, we call this coming out of denial. In Buddhism, it's called right view, dispelling ignorance or delusion. The addict then sees that their relationship to the addictive drug or behavior is what is causing them suffering, while the Buddhist sees the more general truth that clinging to anything is what is causing suffering. Step one says we admitted we were powerless over, insert your substance or behavior here, that our lives had become unmanageable. The first noble truth says birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering, union with the displeasing is suffering, separation from what is pleasing is suffering, not to get what one wants is suffering. And the second noble truth says the origin of suffering is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, craving for extermination. These statements of the Buddha that suffering is caused by our craving are the most direct parallels to the issue of addiction. Now, many people seem to struggle with the term powerless or with the idea that their lives are unmanageable. And while I think those terms can be explained in useful ways, which I've tried to do in my other books, <laughs> what's important isn't the specifics of language, but the overriding point. In the language of the spiritual journey, step one and the first noble truth are the wake-up call. 
much more than questioning, am I really an addict or do I really have to go to those meetings? We need to find a way to respond to this call. And that's the beginning of the spiritual journey. So the next stage of the journey is step two, coming to believe that there is a way out, that there is a path. And if we, if we have this wake-up call, and this, as I say, can be existential, you know, seeing that the way people, you know, Christmas time is a great time to have that kind of, people are spending their lives running to the mall, you know, and sort of seeing the superficiality of our culture. If we can't find some way out of that, some answer to that, we can be left in a real sense of despair about life. It can seem really empty. And so it's so important to find a path. So (coughs) step two in Buddhism, or in the 12 steps, is, uh, is that coming to find a path, coming to believe that there is some way out of this dilemma. And in the Buddhist tradition, it's the third noble truth, so we have these numbers, you know, you don't have to memorize them, in which the Buddha says, well, if, there's, if there is a way into this problem, that is, if there's a, the cause of suffering is clinging, then there must be a way out. By definition, the law of karma says, you know, whatever actions we take bring results. So if, if this action brings suffering, this action of clinging brings suffering, then the opposite of that, what we call letting go, or relinquishment, or abandonment, renunciation, then that must be the way to freedom. So there must be a way to freedom. Um, and, uh, you know, I mentioned at some point, I guess it was, maybe it was during the early morning, the first sitting we did, about faith and how in Buddhism, a lot of people kind of come to Buddhism to get away from maybe, you know, a faith-based view or faith-based religion. Um, and yet, in, in fact, there is faith in Buddhism. And I, I like to point out to people that you, know, you probably wouldn't sit down and close your eyes and try to feel your breath for half an hour if you didn't believe that it was of some value. Because on the outside, it doesn't appear to have any particular purpose. You know, I could be getting something done, you know, updating my status on Facebook, you know, <laughs> something really productive. But there is this faith. I mean, to to go up that hill and sign, you know to sign up for a ten day retreat. Well, I'm gonna, you know, I've heard that this is good, but you don't know, right? Yeah. Uh, and so that faith and that trust is actually important at every stage because there's letting go and there's commitment and deeper and deeper pro- uh, commitment at each stage of the process. And of course, we have this in the twelve steps. You know, we're, we're asked to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. Another kind of, I don't know how you turn it over, right? Where, where's my will in my life and where's God to hand it to? It's, uh, but to me, ultimately, each of the steps was really required faith. I mean, why am I writing this inventory? Just, just go ahead, trust me. Just do it. It'll be worth it. You know, and it turned out to be incredibly transforming. Making amends? Why, do I have to do that? Just try you know, and, and then, of course, step 12, being of service. Well, why should I bother with other people? I got mine, you know. And, and then discovering the great joy and freedom that comes through that. So, so this is, um, you know, this is implicit in, in any spiritual 
path is is faith, uh, and that and that's different. You know, again, we kind of I I feel like the there's a certain way in which uh, you know this very narrow interpretation. And now we're moving into the editorial comment section of the afternoon. So just reading. this very narrow interpretation of Christianity has become the the definition of it. Even the the you know like that's what Christianity is about. Like it's about essentially believing in things that are unbelievable. And if you'll just believe in these unbelievable things, then God will bless you. I mean that that's how I got it when I was a kid. So that's admittedly you know a childish interpretation, but. It's, I don't think it's too far from the way it's kind of delivered in our culture. And, and, uh, and I think pe- people get so alienated from what I think. I think Christianity is like a really powerful, beautiful religion. Um, and, and, of course, there are places in, in Asia where you can go and practice Buddhism where you wouldn't recognize it. It wouldn't look like it looks here, whereas there's also what I would call magical faith, magical beliefs involved. And so, so faith in Buddhism isn't about believing things that are unbelievable. It's about believing things that are believable, but you're not sure of. And, and the importance of that is that if we don't believe in the possibility, then we don't take the action to make that possibility real. And that's the importance of faith. There isn't, it, faith isn't magical in the sense if I believe, then you know you just got to believe in Santa Claus and then he's going to come and give you presents. It's that what you believe drives your actions, and your actions are what you know, bring about the results in your life. So if you don't believe in yourself, if you don't believe you can you know, walk up that hill, you won't take the first step to get up the hill, and it'll be self-fulfilling. So that's, to me, what's critical about faith, ultimately. So the, in the next stage of the spiritual journey is, I call, entering the stream. This is step, uh, step three when we turn our will and our lives over to the care of the Dharma, I would say, to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And in, the, in Buddhism, it's that refuge, taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha in a more uh, direct way, it's engaging the, the Eightfold Path, trying to live by the Eightfold Path. So entering the stream is when we say, okay, I believe this works and I want to do what has to be done. I'm ready to do what must be done. And we make that commitment. We start showing up. You know, in recovery world, we start going to the meetings. We start calling people. We do what the sponsor tells us to do. You know, we turn it over. We, we get out of the way, our own ego, our own preferences, and we start to just do what is suggested to us. In the beginning, I think that's a vital way to work a program. And in Buddhism, it's the same thing. We just start to show up with our practice. We don't sit down and go, oh, well, my meditation wasn't very good today. I, won't, I don't think I'll meditate tomorrow. You know, or that was difficult. Uh, I'm not going to do it anymore. Uh, or I don't understand this Dharma stuff. Uh, forget it. You know, no, we, we're engaged now. We're, we're committed. We're trusting in this process. And we turn our will and our lives over to it. We're in. Once we're in, in the 12-step world, we find that that commitment to change and to live in harmony with the Dharma, which is another way that 
I defined step three, we realize that there's a lot of parts of us that are out of harmony with the Dharma, uh, that, or that there at least is you know, a, a past that has not really been resolved. And that's when we step into the inventory process. And the step, steps four through nine, in some sense, is about this whole process. So we start with self-examination, this, this rigorous honesty, this searching and fearless moral inventory. Because we can't really move forward if there's all this unresolved stuff in our past, baggage in our past. So we come to see that clearly and admit the truth of that in step five. And then, step six and seven, we're now trying to really bring about change. And in the the way I've characterized it is I've taken this phrase from Buddha Dasa, the great Thai master, who said that uh, you know, to when we ask God, we are beseeching the law of karma through our actions, not merely with words. So when the step step seven says we humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings, that it's not we don't take that literally, but that this is metaphorical for activating the law of karma. The most powerful higher power, I think, is the law of karma, that every action has results, that we're responsible for that, and that we have to, uh, if we want things to be the way we want them to be, we have to do the things that bring about the results that we want. It's, I can say that's simple. It's very difficult to do, and it's not always clear what the right thing to do is, and that's we can, you know, part of this process. That's we can say that's what step eleven is pointing to, but we're not there yet. So this uh, beseeching the law of karma is when we really start to live differently and make different choices, uh, and and you know, based on what we've learned about our habitual and historical and conditioned ways of being in our inventory. Our inventory kind of reveals our karmic patterns, our ways of being. And now we have to deal with that. Oh, I see. I tend to get really angry easily. Oh, okay. What am I going to do about that? And we start to draw on all the healing resources we can have, find. You know, whether it's uh, you know, working with a therapist or a sponsor, whether it's doing qigong exercises that release anger, uh, whether it's practicing meditation and just breathing with that and feeling that, uh, you know, now we know what the issues are, and and there's a lot of tools out there to help us. And it's not just written; it's not just the stuff that's written in the twelve steps, and even even the twelve step literature tells us we should draw on all the resources we can find in our healing. So part of that healing then is the is the direct amends process. The, what we can call the healing the past. Really trying to trying to do what we can to make direct efforts to heal past harm. And uh, this is something that uh, we were talking about because uh, uh, in our last retreat I got a little extreme in my characterization of of uh, the limits of step nine. But just um, you know we come up against the fact that. Harm has been done, and, and that can't be undone. Uh, but the, what for me is more important about the amends process, including step 10 then, is the willingness to take full responsibility for the mistakes we make. 
the to the willing which to me the the most important and most what makes that so difficult so the most important part of that process is letting go of ego of protecting ego being able to be wrong that's what i feel that ultimately i got was the biggest gift for me of working steps 9 and 10 both the amend steps that it it gave me the ability to be wrong before that i couldn't be wrong uh, I can't say that I can always be wrong now, but um, occasionally I can admit to it, and, and uh, that's so freeing. Because you know, you, when you, when you first have that breakthrough, and you realize, wow, I can be wrong, and the world doesn't fall apart, and you know, it's a relief. What a relief! It's one of those great. Do you, do you hear of that, speaking of that, you reminded. Do you remember the Dalai Lama was given a, a talk somewhere, and they had a translator. And the Dalai Lama corrected the translator, and they, and they went back, and he said no, and he did it again, and he went back, and the, and the Dalai Lama said no, it's supposed to be this way, and then somebody whispered in his ear, and he goes, "I was wrong," <laughs> in front of like thousands of people, and he just started laughing, and <laughs> like like it was a, like it was two people sitting in the room. I was wrong. And he started, I thought that's great. Yeah. It's just so awesome. That's good. That's good. He was able to admit that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, they probably would have fired the translator. Yeah, yeah. If that ever happens to me, <laughs> I'm going to have to uh, look into that. Yeah. So once we've gotten to this stage, then we move into what I'm call here the living the life of the spirit. So step 11, which, is, so as I was referring to that question of, of what do I need to do? And step 11 is supposed to partly answer that question. Asking only for knowledge of his will for us. Okay, let's get him out of the equation here. You know, he's always getting in the way as far as I'm concerned. And just asking what I need to do being open and trusting again that, that the answers will come if your own house is in order. There's some phrases in that literature that to me just, boom, okay, my house needs to be in order. Now, what are we talking about here? Okay, well, we know what, you know, you know when you're, what your emotional state is. When I'm like, all right, I'll the stuff, the answer's not going to come, you know. Uh, you know, the answer is not going to come when I'm angry or depressed or scared and nervous. You know, I got to get my house in order. You know, and I, that means for me sitting down, getting quiet. Most of my answers come during meditation. You know, uh, a lot of times I prepare what I'm going to do in teaching when I'm meditating. You know? But you're not supposed to think when you're meditating. Yeah, that's it's another illusion. Right? <laughs> You do your best thinking when you're meditating. You do, you know. And the thing is that Westerners are so habituated to think all the time that Western teachers try to teach them not to think first. <laughs> and because Western teachers are always teaching beginners, they never get to teach like people who have been doing it for a while and say, you know, it's okay. You know, trust your thinking when you're meditating. You know, because this is one of the things that we learn in meditation is... When is it ego? Because if you're sensitive to your body, you're sensitive to your emotions as you're sitting, 
And that thought comes in, your body tells you, oh, this is off. Let me breathe and let go of that. And then there are other things that come through that are like, oh, right, oh. And there's clarity, right? That's, to me, that's, if you want, you know, it's God's will. I mean, I I really don't like that language because I think it's the potential for arrogance that can come out of that. I think we had a president who said, let's go invade Iraq because God told him to, you know. I mean, I'm sorry. I think I got back on the editorial page. He was drinking? That was in the National Enquirer, right? Yeah, well, Michelle hates Barack because he was, like, you know, flirting with the Danish whatever. So, you know, that's, you, gotta, you get a lot of information from those things. And step 12, of course, brings us to this culmination of spiritual awakening, which is really just a description of what happens in the step process. It's not some uh, magical event, you know, where you're lifted up, you know, and you, you rise above spirit rock, and you know, shh. It's, it's just a natural outgrowth. Having had a spiritual awakening, I love the way it's, it's stated almost so matter-of-factly. It's not like, you know, you're going to have a spiritual... It says, you've already had it <laughs> when you get to step 12. Wait a minute, what? when did that happen? But if you look around and you look at your life and the way you live now, yeah, oh yeah, right. I mean, if you, you know, think of spiritual awakening as being, you know, living wisely and kindly. And what do we do? We share it. We give it away. It's always the the culmination of the spiritual path of that archetype is coming back, you know, then the, the ten ox herder pictures in the Zen, there's the going to the mountain and the having the awakening and then just coming back to the marketplace and coming back into to being of service. And of course that's what the Buddha did, that he went off for years to, of, of practice in the forests and, and uh, you know, finally had his breakthrough and then he just spent the rest of his life traveling around, walking around northern India, helping people. Uh, and, of course, I love the last phrase of the 12 steps, uh, practice these principles in all our affairs, because it's, it's, it tells us that this isn't about just you know, showing up on your cushion 30 minutes a day or going to church once a week or you know, doing one little thing. It's this is your life. This is it. Uh, it closes all the loopholes. Okay, so now I'm going to move into the 12 steps and happiness. And, and this is, uh, as I was looking at this, I was thinking, well, this can, if we're talking about the gift of recovery and the healing, this is also really about the healing. So step one, the happiness that we find is the happiness of letting go, letting go of addiction, of giving up. And uh, one of the things that I've been uh, enjoying kind of talking about with people is uh, reflecting on the very early days of your recovery. Because typically, uh, again, I, I guess I like to just take these sort of contrary views or kind of a shift viewpoint. So the typical uh, you know, share about early recovery is uh, maybe detoxing or just you know, really having a hard time. But most of us also have a story about real moments of joy and 
lightness and the pink cloud they talk about. And, and, you know, for me, it was just that first day when I woke up and realized it was over, I felt so good. And I was broke. I was hungover. I was unemployed. You know, my life was not together, but I was actually happy for the first time in a very long time. And it was because I had let go of that burden. So just to, for us to see, to remind ourselves, wow, there's happiness just in, there's a joy just in that beginning of this process. And can we remember that? Can we appreciate that? This is what people are talking about when they say, you know, I'm, I'm a grateful addict, I'm a grateful alcoholic. And step two, there's the, uh, that comfort of realizing, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be okay. You know, this is going to work. I'm going to be okay. Step three is another deeper letting go, a deeper surrender. Oh, I don't have to run the show. Wow, there's guidance, there's help. There's a process here. I can engage in something. Uh, the, the acceptance that comes with that. And step four, writing is searching for your moral inventory. As much as that can be difficult... There's also a sense of excitement that you're really you're all in now, and you're do, you're doing this process, and and you know the the willingness. You're not fighting anymore. It's like yeah, okay, this, 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 and and kind of the sense that okay, I'm I'm in it. That means I'm going to get through it, and that it's not going to end. I mean, it's not going to. You know, it is going to end. That was bad. Writing the inventory also, uh, one of the experiences I had, and I, I have to imagine that this is a common experience, was realizing I don't do this anymore. I, I, the, oh, I'm not, that's not me anymore. And so even though I'm writing it down, it's the, my story, as Greg was talking about, like the discomfort of writing his story for his book. There's also a feeling like uh, of relief that, oh, that's not me anymore. Great. I'm glad I'm getting this out, but I don't have to carry this burden anymore. And of course, then the sharing of it you know, is that unburdening and that, that sense of, uh, you know, just I don't have to carry this anymore. And, and uh, again, I don't think my experience is uncommon that that my sponsor laughed at a lot of the stuff that I read to him that I thought was so serious. And it lightened it up for me so much. And there was, uh, first of all, there was that sense of I'm not so unique. And I remember that morning so well. We, we had a, I had a home group in Venice Beach, and that was his home group, and you know, went over to his house after the meeting and read this to him. And it was a, you know, a sunny day in Southern California, and I just remember coming out of his house and just, ah, I mean, what, a, how uplifting that was, so freeing. Uh, so, you know, the things I'm talking about here, these aren't, these aren't, I'm not giving you teachings. What I'm trying to do is giving you reminders, I hope, of your experience, too, for the, so that we can all remember the goodness and the joy that we actually have had and continue to have in this process. Um, so uh, I don't think I'm going to go through 
the rest of the steps because I already went through them once on one thing. But just, you know, because really what I'm doing is trying to just point out a, a way of looking at the steps of what, what, how can I find joy in the steps rather than thinking of I have to work the steps and I have to write my daily inventory. And, you know, the, the one, one story that really stays with me of someone who I, I feel like used the steps in a counterproductive way there was this there's this method of working steps 10 and 11 that whereby if you are upset or disturbed that you stop and write an inventory and then pray and meditate which is you know that's a beautiful practice and certainly a useful one but i knew some people in berkeley who who were uh, I guess under the sway of someone who who used this to what I would call an extreme so so that you sort of couldn't do very much uh, because you were stopping and writing inventory and meditating all the time and this one particular young woman who you know had come back from just as many of us have from a pretty tough times as an alcoholic and an addict and and she had managed to get herself into uh, UC Berkeley, you know, which is hard enough in itself, right? But uh, in recovery, to, to do that, it's a, it's a real accomplishment. And, um, and then I remember hearing her share at a meeting that she decided she had to leave school because um, it brought up so many feelings when she was in school that she just had to stop and write inventory and meditate all the time. And so she decided that the way to resolve that was to drop out. I thought, that's really a distortion of this process. This isn't about get rid of your uncomfortable feelings. You know, For me, it's about walking through those uncomfortable feelings. I mean, yeah, I want to work with them. I want to breathe with them. If I have to inventory them and meditate, great. But ultimately... I got to show up, you know, I got to suit up and show up, you know, and if, if I decide that I have to drop out of college because I'm having too many feelings, there's something off there, right? And, and I, that's a really extreme story, but we can use the steps in this way. We can turn them into this project that's not fun, you know, that's getting in the way of life. So... Um, so there you go. That's, uh, that's enough for now. Um, maybe, you know, we haven't done, except for this morning, we haven't done a lot of interactive stuff, and, and I would like to do that, uh, just because I think it's so nice to, to talk with each other a bit and not just sit here and listen to someone speak. Um, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you a very simple question and then ask you to find a partner to work with. So, and this is about spiritual awakening. So I'd just like you to reflect on, with a partner, what, is, what does spiritual awakening mean for you? You, know, and you might have to talk about the word spiritual, what that means for you, and then what, how that means with, what that means with awakening. Um, and, then, and then talk about how you see that in your own life, what that means in your own life, uh, if you can relate to that as something that's happened for you.
okay? So just find a partner and just, you know, talk a little bit about spiritual awakening and its meaning for you. Thank you. <laughs>